I'm David. And I'm Torah. All right. So, um, for our little banter, I guess, the start of things, um, well, I got to go to a J-Rock concert. Woo. Nice. Um, so, um, band made the, uh, Japanese rock band, um, with a made cafe gimmick, I guess you would say, um, one of their locations they went to for their U S tour was in Portland at the crystal ballroom. And so I managed to get tickets there. Um, I got floor tickets instead of, um, balcony tickets, which honestly, I'm going to say was the right decision, both in terms of getting proximity to the stage, also getting the experience of the Crystal Ballroom floor. Have either of you been to concerts at the Crystal Ballroom? Not for a good long time. It's been a while, time. but yes, I have, and the floor is usually more fun. Oh, that's my understanding. <laughs> I think most like actual rock concerts, the floor is always more fun. Yeah. True. Well, so also, it's the experience of being on the Crystal Ballroom floor. So for those who are unfamiliar with the Crystal Ballroom, um, the actual venue, Crystal Ballroom venue part, is on the third story of the building. And the floor is of a design what's called a floating floor, which means it basically has a series of shock absorbers under the floor, which can be calibrated to various degrees of give. Um, which, what this means at a rock concert is... When everyone's jumping up and down with the music and that sort of thing, the floor moves. <laughs> um, I mean, on the one hand, it means that you can jump up and down to the music and it's rather comfortable on your knees and your feet and that sort of thing. Very On the other hand, um, when you're on a third story of a building and the floor is moving when everyone's jumping up and down, unless you know about this and know to expect it, it can feel, at first, a little disconcerting. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, it was a really, really good show. Uh, I definitely recommend for those listening, if uh, Bad Maid is playing in your area, I definitely recommend checking it out and also if you are in the portland area and there is a band that you like that happens to be doing a concert at the crystal ballroom i definitely recommend uh going to that venue it's a good time mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, right. so i um, uh, i have a quick just quick mention of an isekai that i found that i really liked <laughs> of course it's called campfire cooking in another world with my absurd skill um, and it's, it's kind of a cooking show in addition to being an isekai. Um, I enjoyed it greatly. If you like, um, <laughs> adorable, adorableness and wolves, there's a big wolf character who's great and cooking. Um, and there's not a whiff of fan service in it, which we all know is vanishingly rare. So very much recommend. <laughs> Just one of those good, wholesome ones. Our seven-year-old really enjoyed it. it so that... We'll show you like the age they're avail enjoyable for all ages. Might make you hungry, like it, all good cooking shows. It, it is <laughs> make you One other fun thing. Um, so at the Hollywood Theater in Portland, as I mentioned a couple episodes ago, they do their uh, anime ham screenings, where like every few months they do a anime screening. And this past and earlier this month they did um, uh, memories which is a anthology film adapting 
three short uh, manga that were written by Katsuhiro Otomo, uh, with one with different directors for each segments, with Otomo himself directing the last one, and that was really great fun. Um, in particular, uh, like like all the segments are great. Magnetic Rose, Stink Bomb, and Cannon Fodder are all like in the uh, individually very good, but like seeing like seeing them on a big screen adds a lot and in particular seeing the middle segment stink bomb which is a uh kind of dark satirical comedy uh with an audience is also really great um as well it's like getting those audience reactions like as the jokes play out and that sort of thing nice hey it's like uh national movie theater day tomorrow i think mm -hmm. yeah so as this is yeah as the, when this episode goes out uh, it'll be national movie theater day um, sadly, I don't know if there's any anime screenings going out that day, but, oh, well. Um, I probably will be missing, uh, the next movie, uh, anime movie day they're doing at the Hollywood Theater, though. They're doing, um, for October, they're doing Rutsuki Doji. So, mm -hmm. I'm probably going to give that a miss. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, yeah. I'm still waiting. It's probably going to be a while still for Miyazaki's latest film to make its way over here. The one that Studio Ghibli did a major flex on and decided to do zero marketing for. <laughs> It'll make yep. it here eventually. <laughs> yep. Just dropped it in theaters and... Yeah. <laughs> it's I kind of love that well. move. <laughs> <laughs> it, 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 it's, it's like Miyazaki, like, heard, like, heard about what Beyonce did, like, just dropping an album out of the blue and, like... What if I did that with a movie? <laughs> right? <laughs> the only question, I mean, given Miyazaki is, did he create a movie just to do that, or was he working on a movie and decided to do that? That's a good... That is indeed a very good question. So he, how contrary he can be. At yeah, it's like... I mean, that man has just... I don't want to call it spite... But he has so much contrariness in him. I would not put him past. I would not put it past him to create a movie for the sole purpose of releasing it with no fanfare. And just really quick, while Studio Ghibli is is on topic, um, I just found out that Nizo Yamamoto, who was one of the background artists for Studio Ghibli, just passed away a few days ago of stomach cancer. Um, and he did a lot of other stuff as well beyond Studio Ghibli productions, and his, his art is absolutely just incredible. And so, passing of a giant there a little bit. Yep. Indeed. Like, background artists in anime, I think, are one of those fields that get underrated. Indeed. Um, and, like, I have a... Uh, art book that I picked up a while back. It was actually from an exhibit in Britain, which sadly never came over to the United States, of like urban landscape art from various science fiction anime and that sort of thing, like Ghost in the Shell and Akira and that sort of thing. And it's called the, the title of the book is Anime Architecture. It's a really good book. It has also good, really great essays in it as well. Um, this is definitely one of those things where like if you have an opportunity to pick up a art book whether from like Kitokunia or from Tokyo Otako Mode or someplace like that of like background art, I definitely recommend picking that up. Um, like just really excellently done. 
you guys can't see this, but I've just been nodding throughout this whole speech. Um, <laughs> having gone to art school, I am aware of just how much craft goes into backgrounds, especially urban backgrounds. The grasp of perspective that you have to have and lighting and color is astounding. And, um, and it's just for something that is in the background of the shot and most people don't give it enough credit. So yeah. Mm -hmm. And that, that's a great seg into, you know, the anime we're covering today, which has absolutely gorgeous, uh, background art. Yes, it does. We are specifically covering the uh, OVA series, which came out in 1990, uh, 1991. For those who are unfamiliar with the concept of the OVA or listing this or relatively new to anime, OVA stands for Original Video Animation. And basically what this meant is this was released on VHS tape to video stores um, or direct market at very high prices. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Starting the era of Otaku will buy any damn thing. Um, <laughs> I mean, equivalent, I mean, not anymore because now it's straight to streaming, but back in the 90s, it was the equivalent of a straight to video release. Yep. With the difference being is that oftentimes when we think, when we think straight to video release in the United States, we think of like the sort of like shot on digital video, um, very low budget fare meant to fill up the shelves like a Hollywood video or family video or blockbuster or that sort of thing. Um, but the part of the key thing to mention here is this is coming out in like, cause the start, the, the sort of OVA boom started in the eighties and moved into the nineties. So we're in the middle of the bubble, Japanese bubble economy. And so what you have is you have lots of money to throw at projects like this. Um, and so you are able to put like, do you mean, so like, this is like a, like, like a full TV series length thing. Um, so whereas other more, other works might be like, just like one or two episodes and it has a level of production quality at points that is even maybe not like movie level all the way, but at least like better than what you would be seeing on a television series, mm -hmm. uh, on an actual like over the air television series. Cause they have the additional time with that schedule to put in this level of work. Yeah. And uh, on top of that, you be ha you're having these higher prices, both because the BHS tapes are being priced, are priced for rental establishments because rental is still a market that exists at this point, um, and uh, so you'd either have the the rental places spending that and then making their money back on um, the, the rental fees, or anime fans like this, I just want to own this for myself and just buying it outright. And then it would eventually trickle through to America mm -hmm. and show up in a blockbuster video. And then we would rent it because we were into anime and we just rented any anime that showed up at the time. <laughs> and sometimes it was great. Sometimes it was mind scarring. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. A couple of my favorite Gundam series are the OVA ones, uh, 0083 and uh, 08 The Mess Team. Yep. Like 0083 is definitely one of those ones where it's like, um, that that's more in the pocket, right? Uh, no, no, no. That's 0080. Uh, 0083 is Stardust Memory. Oh yeah. So yeah. So yeah. Stardust Memory is, is like that is one of those ones where I'm like, 
I was watching, like, this animation quality-wise feels like a movie, like, it, in terms of... Exactly. Oh, my God. It... That, that that one, the animation still holds up. Same with 08 The Mess Team, but 08 The Mess Team was nearly a decade later, so there were definite advances. Also, 08 The Mess Team took three years to come out for 12 episodes. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, a few notes on how um, Record of Lowest War came to be, and also why we're picking it for August, because August is the month of Gen Con, which, started the be- which was at the beginning of this month. And... Record of Lotus War is a anime series that is born out of a tabletop role-playing game campaign. Um, and particularly was <laughs> Shout out to my D&D nerds! <laughs> and in particular, um, it is was born out of a what's called a series of replays. Uh, for those who are not familiar, uh, replays are what I describe as um, if you've watched Critical Role, imagine, trans- imagine doing a, a, a transcription of what's said over the course of a episode of Critical Role. Um, Printing that, uh, typing that out, binding it with some additional art and that sort of thing to illustrate some of the stuff going on in there. And that is what a replay is. And that's the idea being is you have these replays that would either be fan published and sold at like Comicet or in some cases even published in magazines as Lotus was. Um, to um, help show how you would play a role, a particular tabletop role-playing game. Remember at this time, um, D&D over in America, TSR was publishing magazines full of D&D content, uh, like two or, no, two or three separate ones. Dungeon and Dragon. And there was something else, but I can't remember it. Um, There's Polyhedron, but I don't think it was published at this point. So back in the Halcyon days before streaming, <laughs> everybody was reading magazines, um, especially in hobby communities, because like we're still kind of in the early days of forums and stuff at this point. And so all the official material that was being published was coming out in books and magazines. So uh, books and magazines weren't necessarily easy to get because there was still the uh, <laughs> there was still the satanic panic going on. Not the heyday of it from the 80s but still but fun fact before actual play was a thing actual play was a thing in magazines mm-hmm. <laughs> yep um in fact actual play kind of pre like the um the sort of thing even predates um role-playing games uh, my dad used to do miniatures wargaming and a large part of what would have in miniatures wargaming magazines and also fanzines would be after action reports Mm-hmm. where you would have people do a write-up of their miniatures battle they did uh, from the perspective of the commander or commanders of the battle and describing it out that way. And you could get like a copy of um, like Wargamer's Digest where like three quarters of the magazine is just after action reports from pe- submitted from people's uh, home games. If anyone is interested in how the origins of D&D are rooted in this kind of tabletop wargaming all the way back to kind of the original roots of it. The um, web reviewer SF Debris did a fantastic video essay called, I think, The Time of Wizards, Mm -hmm. um, in which he covers the roots of the game all the way through all of the kerfluffle at TSR and the politics that happened with Gygax and everything. So anyone interested in that, um, very much recommend I also recommend as a companion with that, 
uh, as one of the like as one of the books that are or a couple of the books that are source material for that series. Mm-hmm. Um, author John Peterson um, yeah. wrote has written three books that kind of cover the the early days of Dunge- early era of Dungeons and Dragons, um, playing at the world, which covers the uh, early lives of Dave Artisan, Gary Gygax, and how they would start TSR and create Dungeons and Dragons. Um, then um, the elusive shift, which is how the rules basically once it got contact with the community and through fanzines and that sort of thing would evolve and change and lead to ultimately what become advanced Dungeons and Dragons. And the game wizards, which has gets into the legal conflicts between uh, Gygax and TSR and Dave Arneson and also Gygax and the larger role-playing industry. Mm-hmm. Um, all those are, I absolutely recommend are definitely worth picking up. Um, I will say that uh, playing at the world can be kind of dry. It was originally meant to be something of a more academic publication, but um, it is definitely worth checking out. There is one other book that I would recommend is um sure about the title correct um there was a, one other history book on Dungeons and Dragons I'm trying to remember the name of it um which I also work on picking up it basically starts up after or covers some of the early days but also carries on after Gary was ousted partially of it of his own due to his own arrogance from TSR um, and into the kind of company's fall. Oh, and one other one, if you um, Designers and Dragons by um, Shannon Applecline, which also covers basically the entire role-playing industry. So not just uh, TSR, but other companies as well and how they interacted with TSR, which ties into the um, other bit from with this. So the Lotus War campaign itself was actually commissioned um, in terms of the replays and that sort of thing. The people who ran the game were part of a sort of fan circle called Group SNE, um, who they had done like they done some role, played role, various role playing games before and done replays for stuff using like tunnels and trolls, which is also fairly popular in Japan, and. A few other and a few other games, uh, RuneQuest, and they were approached by J- the Japanese publisher of the uh, the basic Dungeons and Dragons rules because those had an official Japanese release as opposed to Advanced D and D, which they used some also, which hadn't. And asked them, "Hey, can you do a replay? Um, run a game using the D and D basic rules, and run the." Replay in Comtic Magazine, which is published by Katakawa Shoten, and which has since gone on to publish such things as, for example, the manga for Fate Stay Night and um, other fun stuff. And they said, sure. And they ran it, did very well, um, did so well, in fact, that they thought, hey, what if we try to do an officially licensed version of these ro- of the game setting for um, D&D? They'd already at this point gotten uh, approached to do a a, con- a console role-playing game set in the Lodo setting for the PC engine, which ended up using its own rule system. But they wanted to do something, you know, wanted to give back. So 
Ryo Mizuno, the GM of the game, uh, called TSR long distance um, to approach them to get permission to publish the book. And they were placed on hold. He was placed on hold. And left on hold for quite some time, and he eventually just kind of gave up. And instead, they decided to move forward by basically taking the rule system that had been designed for the PC Engine game and make it something you could use in a tabletop environment. And then from there, they would later work with uh, another company to put out a version using the Sword World rules. I don't know exactly what years this was in the late 80s, which would fit for um, after either like when TSR was in the middle of a degree of internal. Yeah, it was either either like internal turmoil leading to Gygax's ouster or just afterwards when uh, Lorraine Williams had just taken over the company. So it would have been. Things are messy. Yeah, things are messy. <laughs> Good chance whoever answered the phone had no idea where to where to direct it to. Yeah, like, uh, like, like, the has been. Let me put you on hold. Speaker fight. Does anyone in this company know Japanese? <laughs> anyone at all? I wonder, like, how that went. <laughs> and oh, going and checking around and discovering the only person, the one person who did, like, maybe quit with quit after Gary was fired or that sort of thing. <laughs> um, so, yeah. Um, so I, I bring up the, the D&D basic thing because when you look at the character class, character group in Lodos, it is very much a D&D basic party. It um, is. It is Parn, who is a fighter, Slain, who is a wizard, Eto, who is a cleric, Woodchuck, who is a thief, and then Gim, who is a dwarf. Dwarf, that's the class and the race. Yeah. Yes, the class and the race, and then Deedlet, who is a elf, again, class, class and, and race. race. <laughs> <laughs> Correct. My understanding is that the TV show that they made following the OVAs, after they had kind of went to their own system is a little less identifiable as D&D Basic, but the OVA, which we're discussing, is very much identifiable as D&D Basic. <laughs> yeah. From what I understand, um, the research I've done, there's actually like three campaigns that were done. The first one focuses entirely on Parn's party and basically goes through episode eight, which is leads to the end of the confrontation with um, the character of Carla. Mm -hmm. And then... Campaigns two and three, which were more done with like Sword World and the Lotus House system. Um, and those follow one follows Orson, who was introduced after the confrontation. Orson and Shiris are introduced after the confrontation with, uh, the with Carla. Berserker and the Ranger, right? Something like that. Yeah. It's something, something like that. Okay. And then campaign three follows spark who is sir not appearing in this show uh and that is very is very much meant to be kind of a next generation kind of campaign um two and three got more heavily adapted in the later television series chronicles of the heroic knight um and those that series sticks closer to the games there's a few other minor tweaks that are made 
for um, the TV series that um, are kind of they're kind of meant to make for a more cohesive narrative, but. When it comes to reading yeah. fan discussions of the differences between the OVA and the TV show, it reminds me a lot of fan discussions about the original Full Metal Alchemist anime and then Full Metal Alchemist Brotherhood. People arguing about the correct sequence of events as true to the original material, which in this case was uh, replay manga. articles, right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, arguing about which characters got more or less attention and arguing about how things were put together in terms of pacing and flow. Whether or not you should have removed characters entirely. (laughs) (laughs) So, I mean, it's great that we have both is kind of my final opinion on the matter. Mm -hmm. I definitely agree. Um, So, um, talk about a bit. Um, When was the first time that you had, had you seen the show before? Yes. I have never seen the show in its entirety, in order, until now. (laughs) Um, But I've definitely been aware of it um, for ages, really. Uh, I think it's hard not to be aware of it if you grew up as an anime fan in the 90s um, because it was very... Influential. uh, Very formative, very influential, especially in terms of fantasy genre. So... But I never managed to sit down and watch the whole thing in order until now, and I have to say, it filled in some gaps. <laughs> yeah, uh, like it yeah. is definitely implementable in multiple senses. Like, also visually, like Deedlet's ears became the definitive anime elf ears. Not not just in anime; they're um, also They've migrated to other places. <laughs> just look at any elf in. Say the world of Warcraft. <laughs> well, anime, video games, yeah, is like is gone from like oh the little like basically Spock ears that if like if you look at say for example the Lord of the Rings movies and um and even and, and that sort of thing it's like it's like more restrained for the pointy ears. Mm-hmm. Whereas like on the other hand, you have the 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 very very pointy elf uh, elf ears where like. I have seen fan art for like or like side bits from like Delicious in Dungeon where you have like the female elf character like having to do special ways of doing her hair to go to, to accommodate her ears. Go around the ears. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I first saw Lotus War. Well, I first saw the first three episodes of Lotus War way back in the '90s on the uh, Sci-Fi Channel's Midnight Anime on Saturdays. Or Sundays, technically. <laughs> That's and I, I remember watching the first, and I'm like, "Oh man, that was great!" And then the second one, because the first episode is actually like chronologically the fourth or the fifth, and being just very confused. It's like, "Wait, what, you you guys are on a quest, but you're just meeting." So, oh, I see what happened. They aired them out of order. <laughs> The show is really interesting in terms of how it deals with its world building, right? Because right up front at the beginning, you get this big dose of world building in the opening narration. But then in the actual show itself, the world building is really scanty. Like, no one ever refers to... Like, you get place names, right? You get the names of countries... But you don't really, you don't get any information about how the countries interact except through the action. 
Um, you don't get any, like, map of the continent or of Lodos, yeah. which would have been helpful, I feel. Uh- <laughs> there, there's no explanation for why there's, like, two kings, a separate prince who also rules a region, how they relate to each other, and why they're interchangeable in who they can give orders to. Also, I was floored to learn after the fact that the dragons, like the unique legendary dragons that are in the show, all have names, but pretty much only Shooting Star gets named in the show. <laughs> no, they also oh, name the they gold name, dra- They name the Marmo dragon, too. But That. Oh, yeah, no. No, they also <laughs> name the gold dragon. Yeah, yeah but show? I cannot remember it. Yeah, because remember, there's like the Wyvern Riders, and they're like, oh, it's oh, okay. that briefly, guy. Briefly. Or that lady. Because the gold one's a lady dragon, apparently. But, I mean, I didn't I didn't have any trouble following along. I want to say that. But I think it's because I am so deeply immersed in and familiar with D&D tropes that I knew what was going on, even when they weren't telling you what was going on. Yeah. Also, the- I was like, I've played enough D and I know where this is going. Like each individual episode is absolutely solid on its own, but the time scale between episodes is not really ever explained. Like some immediately follow, and some very clearly are months later. However, but all the characters look the same, no matter what episode. <laughs> However, you follow along pretty well. Oh, I mean, yeah. the, the action is, is pretty solid, and the they s- do a good job of stating their goals in the moment. Yeah, like, th- these are all very minor nitpicks. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but the story is easily to fo- is easy to follow, and yeah. Yeah, like, I, I think the time scale thing probably is not helped by the fact that it's mashing three different, ca- or like three different campaigns together with the same cast of characters. Yeah. When, um... When, like, some of the characters in Campaign 3 were kids of characters in um, Campaign 1. Um, like, one of the characters in Campaign 3 is, like, the daughter of Slain and Lelia. Yeah. Um, so it's, like, so the, the so you, you, you said, you're like, okay, we're, we're skipping over time, but we're not saying how much time we're skipping over. Um. So I I should mention I so I watched this show um, on VHS tapes checked out from the library when I was in middle school and high school, um, and then um, eventually it also like basically basically hunted up hunting down as much Lodos as I could get uh, the manga which got published by Central Park Media uh, my high school anime club had the Chronicles of the Heroic Knight TV series on DVD so I watched all of that. Nice. And like eventually, when the not when the first novel got a translated release by Seven Seas, I picked that up in hardcover in the hardcover collector's edition as soon as that came out. Um, so I've got a chance to kind of take this story from multiple different directions. I think the only thing I haven't way I haven't read it yet is there are a fan there are fan translated versions of the original um, original original replays. Um, Yes, the internet is a wonderful thing. Yeah, it's just pretty impressive because the original, original, like the D and D ones, not the reprints which were done using, which like basically rewritten using the rules with the the, the, um, Record of Lotus War companion house system rules. Um, Those are actually really hard to come by, and 
come by even in Japan. Like the version, like the issues of the magazines that are in the Diet Library, which is their version of the um, uh, the Library of Congress, are missing and presumed stolen by a fan. Oh, no. Um, so somebody basically managed to get a hold of, uh, borrow somebody's copies, scan them, and then fan, so then we're able to fan translate them. So, and that those are on archive.org. Um, if you want to go look, um, uh, but yeah, I, so I haven't read those yet, but otherwise I've like read the novelization and that sort of thing. So it's interesting, like rewatching this and comparing it to like the novel version. Cause there are some like rather substantial changes. For example, there is a recurring antagonist in here of like our, our main rival for Parn of Ashram, the Dark Knight, and um, his dark elf romantic interest, uh, Pyrotess, basically serving as a dark mirror of Parn and Deedlet. Um, they barely show up in the novel. Yeah, um, I think I remember reading that Pyrotess was created for the show and then was so popular they brought her into the novels. Yep, and Ashram himself basically just shows up to get to be set up as the new leader of um, Marmo after the death of Beld, and whose uh, we we should note his design is near identical to that of Ganondorf Dragmire from the Ocarina of Time. Yeah, he came up oh, on absolutely. screen, and I was like, "Why is Ganondorf here?" <laughs> <laughs> and, and in the novel, it was amazing. Um, like, so his death is more subtle. So in, in, in the book, in the anime, like, um, when we have the big confrontation around like episode five or six between our, our heroic army of light and the army of Marmo, um, uh, it all comes down to like a big confrontation, be like direct sword fight between Beld and, uh, um, the, um, King of pull up the character names because I'm spacing the name. King Fawn. Um and uh Beld beats Fawn and King Cashew, who is our other like major king and is sort of coming up as a serving as a bit of a mentor figure for Parn, goes to challenge him. And the way this goes in the not in the in the anime is all of a sudden, the spear more or less comes out of nowhere, impales Beld like out, out of a clear blue sky, impales Beld through the chest, and then he's struck by lightning. Which, you know... It's not subtle. <laughs> you gotta watch out for that. It, <laughs> it's a very common threat, apparently, on the island of Lodos. Yep. Whereas in the novel, um, they have, Cashew and, and Beld has fight, and then an Arrow comes out of the ranks of the um, army of Cash's side, wings Beld, which distracts him and creates an opening that um, Cashew takes advantage of, not noted with him not having noticed the arrow. King Pistachio, not King Fawn? Nah. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that genuinely, when we were watching this, we took a break between episodes, and King Cashew shows up. He's like, oh, it's that King. Pistachio! King Walnuts! And I thought she was joking, so I was, I was like, oh, no, 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 that, that, that's Walnut. He was like, no, it's 
all men? <laughs> We're doing this. And this went on for a good few minutes. And then she mentioned, and then they come up with cashew, and she's like, "Oh, cashew, that was it." And I'm like, "Were were you not joking around? I was joking around." Were you like, she's like, "No, I just remembered his name was a nut." Couldn't remember. And then it just became an ongoing joke for us. I'm an old woman. Okay, I can't yeah. remember everything. But yeah, Ashram then like declares his eternal enmity against cashew for being so dishonorable and like that is the it was a the, fight well yes but it was an honorable duel between knights and like but in any case like that is the thing and parn and ashram have absolutely no baggage against each other whatsoever as opposed to in the anime where like very early on parn like ashram earns parn's like eternal enmity Yes. For attacking a fort where somebody was nice to Parn, which I can see why that affected him so, because in his home village, apparently everyone hated Parn. They were not nice to him at all. <laughs> yeah. Also, like, Parn in the novel is, like, actually more traveled and, like, like Parn in the show, like, clearly starts out as, like, a level zero nobody. Mm-hmm. Um, Parn in the novel is, like, at least, is, like, probably a level one. Where, like, he's been around, he's actually done a little bit of mercenary work. He's traveled some. Um, and, like, it's very clear that everyone there is, like, absolutely at level one when they get started, at least. Um, oh, you mean as opposed to the anime where Slane introduces himself as a sorcerer, which in basic D&D is, like, a level nine wizard. <laughs> it's like, wait a minute, why are you... This is Gandalf and the Hobbits on an adventure all of a sudden. Yeah, You've got so one way over-leveled character. seems pretty powerful. And <laughs> the level one fighter and the level one cleric. Ito yeah, you, is absolutely Ito. useless right up until like the last episode when he has kind of a heroic stand moment. How many times did I just scream at the TV, Cleric, use your magic! Cleric, do some healing <laughs> Cast blast to buff everybody. Something. Something. <laughs> all of a sudden, it's oh, you just did you only have like ninth level spell slots going in here? Well, guys, I can I do. Mean, he casts cure light wounds and cure wounds fairly effectively. But that's... I don't know. He just sped up the healing process because it's not like he cast the spell and then the cuts heal. No, it's oh, that'll speed it up for you. It's a good berry is what that healing was. Good berry. <laughs> <laughs> good berry. <laughs> oh, man. What's uh, also interesting is like, so I don't know how, so apparently this is a full bit in the replays, um, but episode one of the novel, which is them going through a dungeon and fighting a dragon, um, that is a paragraph in the novel. We'll just we'll just summarize that adventure and move on to different things. <laughs> like, like that whole bit is just one paragraph. I'm like, remember reading the novel. I'm like, I'm looking forward to getting the bit where they go through the the great dwarf tunnel and fight the dragon and that sort of thing. And I'm like, wait, did I miss it? And I'm like, oh, well, yeah. You know, they had their Moria bit. It was a dragon, not a Balrog. But you know, they want like, to avoid it, any sort of intellectual angriness from. <laughs> See, now I have another world-building question. It's like, are there lesser dragons and greater dragons? Do the lesser dragons have names? These are extremely important questions. <laughs> that, I think they're probably just younger. <laughs> I, that, that, is, that is 
a reasonable thing. I, I will say episode one is a good in media res introduction in terms of the characters and their their, their character traits and their dynamics and that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, you got a party, and, you got a dungeon. You, you yep. like it really it very well establishes exactly who each of these people are. You know, I, Eto is the helpful cleric. Slain is the wizard who only has a few hit points. Also, Woodchuck is sneaky and doesn't fit in with the rest of the on the fi- is on the <laughs> fence about whether or not to actually help at times. Deedlit is just she is the guide, she can help. She is pulling Gandalf duty. Gim is sort of brusque. Gim and, is Gimli. <laughs> yeah. Parn is the idiot. No, that's all of them. <laughs> Apparently and, Slane has a badass last name. That wasn't in the show either. FYI. Yep. <laughs> like he, like he's like the one who gets a last name, Slain Starseeker. There you go. No, that that does come up, but it's unclear whether or not that was just that was actually his like a title he had. You know, yeah. I came up with the terrible last name for Parn of Ography, and I cannot see his name without giggling there now. You. I did. <laughs> I came up with it in my head as a joke, and then I just could not so, stop. We may have mentioned speak- that we're goofy. <laughs> speaking of speaking of names, I mean Eto. Eto is. Basically Japanese um. <laughs> yep. <Eto. laughs> um that that's like Melf, the male elf. Yeah. I mean But D D and goofy names go hand in hand, people. That's why everybody fell in love with Jonathan. <laughs> yep, absolutely. Me. Like I, I mean, Eddie. let us not forget the great sorcerer. Zagig, never, never AKA forget. Gygax spelled backwards. <laughs> yeah, so I mean, goofy names, hundred percent here for it. <laughs> I mean, um, we we we've come up with some pretty goofy names for D and D characters that we. Oh played. yes, oh yes, we have. It's it's obligatory. Good old Monterey Jack. <laughs> it does become a bit confusing, however. In translation, when they are spelling the same person's name multiple different times, I'm referring here to Cardus, the goddess of madness and destruction. I've seen that spelled like three or four different ways. <laughs> Inofficial yep. materials, mind you. Mm-hmm. Um, so, like, speaking of the other antagon- major antagonistic characters, we have um, uh, Wagnard, or Wagnard, who, like, in the novel, has a backstory with Slain. Where, like, they both went to the same magic school, but Wagner was kicked out for for casting dark magic and had a curse cast on him where it would cause him physical pain to cast magic spells. I could explain why he's batshit crazy later. You know, that, that that feels like that's material that should have been in the show. Sort of explain why he both is the magical advisor guy to the king... But barely uses any magic that we see. Until he goes full, oh, yeah, until full, full out, insane. full insanity, full Gets casting. the pointy fangs and the pointy ears of a vampire. It's like, wait, are, were you a vampire this whole time? Did, <laughs> did I miss? I could have missed that, but I, no, I want to say I would have remembered if the evil vizier was a vampire. <laughs> and there's a Beld, which I like. also like the... the, the Hinting of the combined backstory between Beld, um, Fawn, King Fawn, which is one of the good guys, and then um, also um, 
Lelia's mother, oh. right, was one of their yeah. L- L- Lelia's mother and niece Gim. and Gim, uh, right? Um, or no, not, not Gim himself, but Gim's king. Gim's king. Okay, Gim's king. That was unclear. I was like, wait, but Gim also has like a background. Was he, was he the dwarf in that in that mural? Gim had a very strong connection to Lelia's mother, and so yeah. I thought that maybe they were comrades, but. And also the sage wart. Uh, we're like, we're like, basically like, I, I, I like the idea of like, this is like, we are having these cycles of these big heroes going together on quests. They do accomplish great things, maybe saving the world. And then they end up going their separate ways and with repercussions coming after that and that sort of thing. Um, wart first ghosting in at the end. I was like, why are you here, man? <laughs> He and Carl are just standing watching as it's the like, world could potentially end any moment. And they're just like, eh. What, why, why are you here? What, what are you bringing to this besides commentary? And it's not even useful commentary of, like, informing the audience. One of the only missteps in the finale, I feel. <laughs> yep. Um, and, look, and then there's um, Carla, which... So, who basically is a demi-lich. Um, And we get a bit of her backstory here. We kind of get more at length in Chronicles of the Heroic Knight. But I'm going to say, so, like, Carla's basically, like, asshole true neutral. Not neutral evil, but, like, true neutral. Like, like and in a more interesting way than I think of something like, say, to go to D&D, how Mordenkainen is written as true neutral. I think Morton kind is lawful neutral, honestly. Oh, as long right. as he's making the laws. Because, <laughs> like, the, the sense of, like, with Morton kind of this is Morton kind could go help the bad guys for an extended period, then he'll help the good guys for an extended period as long as everything kind of stays in balance. Yep. And, like, I think what makes Carla work for this better than Morton Kynan is, like, Morton Kynan's still kind of a person. Like, he, like he's a guy. Like he, he may be magically have a magically extended lifetime, but he he's a person. He is still in some ways in touch with humanity. He is walking around the world. Um, he goes to eat in the bar. Um, he presumably buys his pipe weed from somewhere and that sort of thing. He has physical and to an ultimate extent emotional extensions from the world with the world. Carla is like 500 possibly plus years old and she's a She's a soul in a circlet who takes people over. She is in a lot, or they actually, they is probably the better pronouns for this. Since the physical, they make a comment about a, a change my body, like a change, a, um, like like a, like changing my clothes. Yeah. And when one wears out, I like my clothes wear out. I throw it out. I, I throw it out. Get a new one. And, um. Where like they've clearly like my head. <laughs> clearly like separated themselves from their sense of humanity. And and as much as they say, Oh, I'm doing this for the preservation of Lodos, that no one faction grows large, more powerful than the other, so that there is, can be no great calamity like the fall of Castul, they're also like they are in no way in touch with the daily lives of the people of where they are and how they're impacted by the decisions they're making. I'm not mean, I'm a thousand years old, and I've just lost sight of my moral code. <laughs> uh, no, yeah, that's true. It, any 
any kind of empathy that she had for normal people vanished a long time ago. It almost seems like... <clears throat> they had. <laughs> yeah, it, it almost seems that their life would life would be so much easier if everyone just died. <laughs> like, okay, we can't have anyone be too powerful. So, this is interesting because in the in the Forgotten Realms setting, there's a faction called the Harpers. And that's kind of their mission statement, is to make sure that no one person or entity, political entity, gets too powerful. Because tyranny inevitably results in their minds. Um, but they're generally good aligned, right? So, Carla is... <laughs> In a world where there is literally a goddess of destruction slumbering beneath the earth. and Goddess of destruction slash madness. And presumably a goddess of creation also slumbering with under the earth somewhere. Because otherwise it wouldn't make sense. And her clerics wouldn't have power. Um, <laughs> I mean, I can see her argument. But this is one of those things where like, she's all about the ends justifying the means. And the ends are often very violent and horrifying. And Sometimes you just can't make an omelet without burning down an orphanage. <laughs> <laughs> that orphanage was too powerful. It had to be destroyed. <laughs> yeah, kind of. It's like, okay, well, what has this tiny woodland village done to disrupt the balance? So then you could argue that because Parn's party sort of defeated her, sort of, and she was forced to take over Woodchuck, presumably interrupting her plans somewhat, um, that that's why um, Evil Wizard was able to start resurrecting the Goddess of Destruction. Wagner. But the show kind of undermines this point by having her show up and talk to Wart there at the end and not do anything... To try and stop it. They're just like, meh. We're tired. <laughs> I had a good run. <laughs> now, they had in uh, Chronicles of the Heroic Knight and the relevant uh, um, the uh, relevant camp um, adaptations, uh, they had Carla return kind of as more of the antagonist there. Um, and have her be involved like in a principally involved in the main plot alongside Wagner. So, um, but that them involved the main plot alongside Wagner. Also at that point, um, Carla had found a different body and dumped Woodchuck somewhere. Was, was um, Woodchuck even in Chronicle of the Heroic Knight? No, he's not. Okay. Woodchuck kind of drops out, um, at the story at this point. Um, and is never really seen again. We don't know if he's dead or he's on the other side of the world real and really confused right <laughs> i mean the ova doesn't really invest in him too much um probably because they knew what what would happen to him um <laughs> and so they didn't want to make the audience care too much because yeah his his fate at the end of the story is left possessed like that's that's his ending from the ova and it's kind of like well, <laughs> poor guy, that nope. kind of sucks for you. <laughs> no good deed goes unpunished. <laughs> yeah. Well, also, like in the novel, um, so a couple like fun changes in the novel. Uh, in the novel, like we kind of everyone kind of trickles together after the original confrontation, um, with um, at like Parn's village. 
um, or they, in the show that's how they trickle together in that way. The village of haters. Uh, in the novel, we get like our original party of like Parn, Gim, Eto, and Slane, who are like, like like the the players who made it to the first session with the other two joining like later, mm-hmm. and the other two characters they meet in the bar. They meet in the next town where they're having a festival and, and iconic, <laughs> and, and they and they they're introduced in the bar and like this. Deedlet's in town traveling and exploring and Woodchuck apparently just got out of prison after 18 years for something he did as a kid. Um, and Yikes. this leads to um, for when he takes up this, when, when Woodchuck gets possessed by Carla instead of him just like the, the circle just going up and grabbing him he voluntarily puts it on. He actually even gets like a speech where it's basically like, yeah, um, like y'all don't know the crap that I had to go, that I've been put through for being in prison, prison for a massive chunk of my life. Yep. Uh, and so heck yes, I'm going to take this circlet and put it on. Maybe I can control it. Maybe not. We'll see. <laughs> Willing to gamble here. <laughs> Yep. I know how bad things can get. <laughs> um, so, like that was that was interest uh, interesting change. Um, so, did you did you watch this dubbed or subtitled? We watched it the dub with the subtitles uh, on. <laughs> so, uh, interesting casting stuff with the dub on this, both the dub and with the subtitles on this. Agreed. So, like, like. For example, Dlit's voice is um, in English is the, the first dub appearance by Lisa Ortiz, who would also go on to be Lena in the English dub voice for Lena Inverse. Um, very different change in type. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and the woodchuck voice is in Japanese is by the great Norio Wakamoto, uh, who is basically Japanese Brian Blessed. Props. Um, and he does a great job there and actually kind of works well with him, like getting the additional material with Woodchuck as possessed by Carla and kind of the back half of the show. Um, so, um, interesting thing to note about the English version was that, um, they actually went to the trouble of translating the song lyrics and getting an English vocalist to re-sing the songs in English, which generally I don't care for, but, uh, you know, they did a decent job, I think. Yeah. There was kind of a thing from this era of anime, because, like, Bubblegum Crisis had that, too. Yeah. And then at some point they realized the fans were just as happy to listen to it in Japanese, so... <laughs> and... Yeah. I think we should probably bring up the absolutely gorgeous animation by Studio Madhouse. Madhouse. Oh yes. Oh, oh yeah. Also, this is one of the gr- they're the absolute peak examples of super super detailed animation that is very rarely actually animated. Yes, sparse sparse in frames in places. They really spend a lot of effort on the opening, which is beautiful. Oh yeah. Um, but you can tell there are some areas after where they're reusing frames or um, the, just panning across frames. Yeah. I, I mean, 
The style of anime in general, as opposed to Western animation, is camera-focused as opposed to character-focused. So it just becomes a little more obvious when you can tell that uh, it's the same frames. <laughs> but I, everything is so detailed is the thing, though. Like, they really put love into the drawings. And this is one of those anime where you can tell that it was drawn and it's awesome. <laughs> like the the um, the amazing beards, uh, the just staggering drapery of all the clothes and the capes and the dresses. It's just mwah, chef's kiss. The con the consistency in the character models is also a hundred percent there. Like no one is ever off model. No one's ever off model. It's beautiful. <laughs> And these are complicated fantasy outfits, right? With weird details. And in some cases, ridiculous pauldrons. All the weapons oh, yeah. are gorgeously detailed. Um, the, the pieces of armor. Like, oh, oh yeah, but yeah, definitely with those pauldrons. Are like, this is pauldrons. a 1990s series, but this definitely adapting character designs from the 80s with the pauldrons to match. <laughs> Pauldron extreme. <laughs> <laughs> I loved it. Um, <laughs> the fact that Parn's old armor that he got that was belonged to his dad actually gets like more scratched and beat up but over his adventures. Like it, it starts off fairly nice and by the last episode it is scratched and you can see it and it's beaten and he's taken some hits and and the members of the main party they all have very different faces. And this is a pitfall that a lot of anime and Western animation falls into, is using the same face for so many different characters. And these characters are all very individualized, very personable, um, like full-on character design, which I appreciate. <laughs> like, like e even great shows could have that same problem with the, with the face stuff. Yes. Like, um, famously for Evangelion, um, mm. Shinji's character design, uh, facial design, is Nadia's facial design except a boy. Yeah. Yeah, they changed the haircut, but the face is the same. Yeah. Mm. I feel like a lot of modern animes, too, fall into this, uh, especially with the, like, the girls all look the same. They just have different hair and eye colors. It's like... <laughs> uh, anyway, yeah. Appreciate the uh, art that went into the OVAs, for sure. And it's, oh, it's yeah. quite long for OVA as well. It's 13 episodes. Thirteen. Yeah, yeah like, like, yeah, 13 episodes, which again, like I, I mentioned content. this earlier, is like a lot of shows from this time would be like significantly shorter. Like Bubblegum Crisis, well, they're double length episodes. It's only six. Um, and like Pat Lieber is like six episodes. Um, yeah, oh, right. yeah, Pat Lieber. Yeah, like um, some, and some shows are like even just like, like one or two. Oh, um, yeah. Like maybe they might do it feature length, like with um, Demon City Shinjuku, but otherwise it's like it's not like this. This this could have like this feels like it was done like okay, we're doing this as an OVA, but we're also going to do this in a way where we where we could potentially sell this to television later if the OVA does well. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know if they were able to successfully do that. Because like that, that actually happened with uh, Pat Labor. Is it aired on television? And then so, got a series, kind of like this, getting a series. Yep. I also appreciate how, um, 
Like, because they had to cobble together different parts from three different campaigns, it can be a little clunky in the transitions, especially between, like you said, like the first eight episodes into the rest of it. Um, but I, also, I I think they did it very intelligently because it feels like a scaled-up D&D campaign to me. You start out as level one nobodies, and then you get up to the point where you're dealing with stuff for a town, and then a country... And then a nation, and then, like, the whole world at the end. Like, so, <laughs> it felt logical to me in that way, and it felt very D&D. So I would be interested to know, like, um, if that was baked into D&D campaigns from the beginning, or if it just became the norm through things like this. No, that, that actually was in from the beginning, is that as your characters leveled up, they did get more responsibilities. Like, especially for a fighter, you, like, literally became, like, a captain in the military, and then an actual lord with a castle. That was something that you got when you leveled up. You got retainers. <laughs> yeah, that, that, yeah, like arguably it's one of the things that's been lost over the years with the with uh, the various transitions to period to other editions of D and D is like when you hit level ten, that is when you kind of shifted from running around and fighting stuff to what's what's generally referred to as domain level play. Yeah, you, where you are, you have a castle, or you have your wizard's tower, or you're running a thieves' guild, and that sort of thing. And some of that even goes back to, like, the Blackmore game that uh, Dave Arneson ran, where uh, eventually you had players um, commanding armies. In some cases, you would have players um, fighting each other, where you'd have one player who became a vampire. And so another character ended up becoming... The priest was introduced in the Blackmore game because another character became a vampire. Very cool. Um, and so... They need and create that as a counterpoint and that sort of thing. So apart from the races and classes and the campaign scaling up, the other thing that I thought was really D&D of it was the way that characters shifted in and out of the main party. Uh, I mean, when, when... Oh no, we've lost two party members. Oh look, two oh, new party members. Oh look, two new interesting <laughs> characters. Boom. Uh. I was like, yeah, I know how you showed up. <laughs> here, are the new here are the new characters for those players. Two out, two in. <laughs> uh, yeah, but um, I mean, even just to the extent of like Slade uh, going off and doing his own thing for a little while, that's very like player taking a hiatus, you know what I mean? Um, you, as a dungeon master, as a good dungeon master, you weave in these moments to make them compelling to the narrative. And so I feel like they did a good job of that. <laughs> uh, yeah, that, that definitely was a really... Um... For, for all of the clunkiness that, that comes from mashing three campaigns together, three campaigns that are set chronologically within the setting fairly par, far apart together, um, it is definitely something that, feel, that feels like it gets that ebb and flow of a campaign well. Mm -hmm. And that worked. Um, I think my of my complaints... Um, but one of them I have after having particularly read the novel, which is, so in the novels, when we get the big pitched battles, in the novels, they do do a good sense of getting a, uh, a sense of scope and also a sense of, like, the armies are, the, their strategy going on and that sort mm -hmm. of thing. Even if, like, the, the ultimate end of the battle is meant to lead to this direct point of Beld and Fawn 
uh, duking, having a, a honorable knight's duel in the middle of the battlefield. Um, you had these sets of like these different like armies and um, units and that sort of thing. It's like a very like scaled down mass combat system going on. That yes. Um, whereas for here in these big pitched battles, it's it's n- far more simplistic, but not in the sense of trying to convey a sense of chaos that you'd see in, say, for example, the Lord of the Rings movies, or even the Rankin-Bass um, Return of the King adaptation, but more just in the sense of, we don't know, we don't have a good sense of how to do this type of pitched battle, so we're going at this with the scope, so we're yes. going to over-summarize it in a way that makes characters, part, would particularly Kashu, seem not as competent as they are. Yes. Um, when I was talking a little bit about how the world building fell down for me, this was a big part of it because I feel like if it had given us a map and a very brief explanation of which countries were allied with each other and why, then the big battles would have made a lot more sense. Like King Pistachio. <laughs> um by his garb, by his dress, rules a desert nation, right? We could kind of figure that out by context before we actually see his desert nation. But well, we don't before we see a desert and presume that's his nation. Presume that's his nation. We don't see his capital for a long time, and then you're like, okay, so his city is built around like one of these oases in the desert. That makes sense. But what is his relationship to these wyvern riders? Are they from the desert? Like, how does that how does that work? And if he put together a kingdom out of conquests because they keep calling him a mercenary king, mm-hmm. where's his mercenary army and are the Wyvern Riders part of it? And like, why are they supporting King Fawn? And you know what I mean? Like, it's just, I have political questions. I, I, yeah, like, that's <laughs> actually like, when you're mentioning this, reminds me, like in the two towers, I don't know if this is, the, this is just the extended edition or if this made it the theatrical cut, like there is a scene that they filmed and put in there to help the audience recontextualize where everyone is with Faramir um, and his forces, like looking at a map of an area, talking about orc movements and that sort of thing, like in Rohan and that sort of thing to help refresh the audience. This is where we are. This is where, this is where Frodo and company are going. Right. And this is where all the other factions are. Um, and give the sense of geography. And considering the scope of the situation and the way the armies were moving around for Marmo and with possible reinforcements from other countries, I feel like what this really needed was like just a scene of like um the war camp scene. I mean yes, the tent like, with the map and like, the figures. <laughs> like we almost get that. We almost get that. Like w- when they're preparing to send Parn and company off to Wart to get additional information we get a little like we see a bit of a map we get them talking about that the road is difficult and they can't necessarily send a large group of people which is why par and volunteers like we're we're a small group we can go do this um and we're not going to take away from the actual battle forces but it would have been nice to like look at the map and say like okay this is where we are um we know that Marmo's invaded here and they've taken these countries and Alania is over here and they pledged their support and we're expecting reinforce and there's um we might begin like like we have the Wyvern Riders from over here, but like 
the Wyvern Riders can make it, but the rest of the army is going to take this much time because it's this, like, just something to set up the yeah. geography, the distances, and in turn the scope. Like, hey, we we have to get, we need time to put our army together, and we need to get more information about this uh, sorceress. And we, so, know that, we know that Marmo's an island, but there are no naval battles. Presumably Marbo has an encampment or a, a foothold on the the main continent. Uh, the main island of Lodos. Because remember, <laughs> as the opening narration says, Lodos is an island that was broken off in the okay. great battle. So multiple islands happening, but we don't know where that is. Uh, King Pistachio is the one with all the ships, which only comes up when ships become necessary, which is fine. Which is confusing. Uh, but Okay, so the desert, desert borders the coast, I, I suppose. Uh, I mean, and that, then, that makes sense. And then the questions bit, about Marmo itself, like... We've seen that Beld's forces are largely consistent of like, you know, kobolds and or, and hobgoblins and stuff and goblins and orcs kind of things. Is that because they like lived on Marmo? Is it because they kind of like are drawn to Marmo because of the presence of Cardus there? Well, the question is, is like how uh, are do, are they a very raid heavy people? How intelligent are these kobolds and goblins? <laughs> because like uh, we're told nothing grows on Marmo. It's right, so, so what are they evil. Eating? <laughs> it's like what are they eating? Where are they getting food? Are they growing it? Are they just eating each other? If so, how does that work? Where is the additional mass coming from? And then my understanding is that in other materials, like the novels, um, Beld and Ashram are assigned more benevolent motivations for wanting to invade Lodos, like because they want a better life for the people of Marmo. Whereas in the OVA, it's just... Are there people? Here's an evil emperor, and here's his evil army of monsters, and here's his paladin, Black Knight, and uh, they're bad. <laughs> yeah. Um, like, yeah, the, the, definitely they are, like, Marmo is more sympathetic. Marmo has a population. Like, part of, like, part of the plot at the end of Chronicles of the Heroic Knight, not to jump the timeline too much, is, like, Oops. Ashram and Pyrotes and a bunch of people peace out because of this big the, the ritual to resurrect Cardus is going on and like like Parn and company are coming in to try and stop it and they're basically like good luck to you I have to stand I have to support my people and protect my people so we're going somewhere else and that leads to the Legend of Cristania uh, sequel series which is set like 500 years in the future um, something like that I'm okay with those two surviving. I was rooting for them by the end. <laughs> yeah, I mean... It's basic <laughs> as hell, but Pyrotest is hot. <laughs> <laughs> and Ashram, he of the constantly moving widow's peak. <laughs> yes. Is it on his left side? Is it... Wait, is it on the right? Is it in the... Is this just the world's worst bangs going on? <laughs> what... What is happening with the front of your hair, my my good sir? They fall into the dragon's lair, and I look at David, and I'm like, "So he's he's definitely he's definitely dead, right?" Like, and David's like, "He seems seems pretty dead, but it, it was but, kind of a Disney villain death." And we're like, "Hmm." And then he shows up later. We're like, "Up, oh, yep, nope, not dead." Um, it was more of a yeah. I mean, he seems dead. But that sort of darkness seems a little plot important. So yeah. I don't I don't think so. 
Uh, yeah, I, 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 I really watched it the first time. Like, he seems dead, but but he, had, but he didn't die in a sword fight with Parn. Therefore, therefore <laughs> he'll be back, baby. Um, just just really quick, we're just gonna acknowledge this and move on. Uh, dark elves are problematic. Okay, yep. um, especially when all of the men are drawn to be extremely ugly, and the one woman is drawn to be extremely hot. And we're just going to acknowledge that and move on. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, just anytime you have the evil race, it... It's problems. Yeah. So one other th- complaint that I had was kind of how Deedlet gets thrust into this damsel in distress role at the end. Although I will say they did a pretty good job of giving her agency, right? Because she casts that light spell so they can find her. And you can see that she's kind of aware of what's happening to her when her life is being drained, but she doesn't have the energy to do anything about it. It's like she would if she could, right? I mean, does... But it does end up in a very... um, damsel in distress situation especially since evil sorcerer for no reason at all puts her in a sexy black dress to have her life drained sure sexy black dress which defies gravity she is floating in the air her hair is swirling with the wind but that dress does not move it is like a solid piece of plastic i have thoughts on that but um Um, not enough to really ruin it for me just I mean, also, me my big question, did, you know, as someone who wrote the novel, who read the novels, and I'm presuming this also happened to Deedlet there, does the drain of her life force mean that she now has a, like, a human lifespan and she can then grow old with Parn? Short answer. This doesn't happen to her in the novels. Yeah. Oh, okay. Uh, uh. This, this, it, instead, this happens to the daughter of, uh, of, um, Lelia and Slain. Ah, okay. Who, this is consequence of combining the uh, timeline. Yeah, yeah. Um, and who like also is like ends up becoming like the avatar of the of um the, of the goddess of good. Thalus. Um, yeah. Marfa. Uh, Marfa is basically the, the avatar of the goddess of Marfa. Um, and she that is ends still up. Around. <laughs> yeah, and so this ends up actually in a weird way, kind of backfiring on um on things. And so I bring this up because I am also playing Deedlet in Wonder Labyrinth. And there's also the new Lodos manga Chronicles of the Covenant out. Or like I've got the first volume of that. The second one isn't out yet. And it is set 100 years after the events of um, of the series, of like the main campaigns. With like one of the characters like being the um, grandson of... On the of Spark, one of the protagonists of the first campaign, Next and like years. D, like Delit show Delit shows up. Parn has passed away of old age. Yeah, and like, um, like you do. clearly she, she Delit did not take an Arwen choice. Nope, she did not take an Arwen choice. In fact, I will choose a mortal life. Well, that's not really an option for you. You're a full blood elf. Yeah. <laughs> With um, spoilers for Delit for Wonder Labyrinth, um, this is actually the, the plot for Delit for Wonder Labyrinth. Like this is actually is kind of a spoiler for the game, um, but it is basically a sort of magical nightmare dream that Delit is going through to cope with her grief for the uh, for Parn's death. Aww. And the um, 
it, it is remarkably like deep and thoughtful for being a Metroidvania uh, action platformer game um, in that regard. Uh, and it's one of those things where, like having like a familiarity with a familiarity with Lodos definitely helps you there because you're like, oh, you start picking up the clues of what's going on earlier when you have that knowledge. Like, oh, mm -hmm. you're supposed to be dead. You're not dead, and she knows you're not dead. <laughs> that sort of thing. Or like, or or you're supposed, or you're not dead, or like you're not dead, but Deedlet doesn't know that, and then you start putting bits and pieces together. Um, along with various lines of dialogue and that sort of thing so it um, works really well in that regard um, and so but yeah like, like Dlit doesn't get her life drained or anything like that um, so it makes for so yeah um, so if, if you've if you've only gone in with knowledge of the OVA like I could see like a little bit of weirdness with um uh, with um, going into the Metroidvania, like, huh? Um, like, what's going on and that sort of thing. I wouldn't have expected it to be like in continuity at all, honestly. So that's cool. Well, we what 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 is your continuity here? Because <laughs> there's like, is it in novel continuity? Is it in OVA continuity? Is it in Chronicles of the Heroic Knight continuity? <laughs> I mean, Chronicles of Heroic Knight is basically in novel continuity. Um, it, it's you know, like a very straight adaptation of the novels to the point where, like, the Central Park Media DVDs on the first disc, like, has a bonus feature saying, hey, if this seems weird compared to what you saw in the OVAs, here's why. <laughs> <laughs> just just to clear this up. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Uh, there, there was a lot of confusion among American fans between... <laughs> <laughs> the OVA that we actually got to see briefly, and then like the show that we got way later, and what what happened there. Uh. <laughs> and by contrast, like the, like the TV show and the OVA got came out like a little bit closer together, um, but not well, like not right on top of each other, but reasonably close. Um, and there was actually, however, at the time the OVA came came out all the novels were out so this was more a case of the fans being like hey i wanted to see um orson's full character arc i wanted to mm -hmm. i wanted to see spark that sort of thing you did dirty by the other two parties but we got both eventually <laughs> yeah um but all of this with the kind of the, the whole thing for lodos like is actually like to be referring to the full Lodos whenever it comes to a home role-playing game going big. because So Lodos has had nice the, act, the actual place, which we've talked about multiple times before, the, the transcripts. It has the novels, both uh, either an adaptation form or in terms of original, in terms of ancillary new works as ancillary materials. It has had the official tabletop role-playing game stuff. Um, it has had various comics and manga, both telling original stories and adapting the, the material from the game. And it's had various video games. It's a mixed media and, empire. Yep, yep, and the animated series. And it's very, so very I, appropriate to compare it to Critical Role for people who are more it, familiar indeed. with Critical Role. Yeah. Indeed, the only thing that Critical Role almost has the whole Lodos. Almost. 
They do not have and video they, games yeah. yet. That is, okay, that <laughs> is, I'm going to rephrase that. They have not released video games yet. They have mentioned about wanting to make them for a while. And if there's one thing we know about that company, they are really good at keeping a lid on things. Yeah. That, the, uh, that is the only thing they have not gotten. They have done everything else that... like Matt Mercer has done everything Ryo Mizuno has done except a video game. It's only a matter of time, let's be real. Well, okay, <laughs> if we're being honest, Matt Mercer and Critical Role, the company, have actually gotten official D&D releases, so they have a one-up on that. That's that is That is true. That That is true. Um, that, that is true. I, I have like been remarkably surprised, particularly with the efforts that Wizards of the Coast and Hasbro have been making in trying to get D&D into Japan, that... I am shocked that they haven't gone like, hey, um, Mizuno Sensei, um, you know that sweetheart deal that we cut with Matt Mercer for and company, Darrington Press, for Critical Role? Uh, we have a similar offer for you with Lotus. Honestly, given all the terrible press they have gotten, they could really use well-deserved terrible press. Oh yeah, absolutely. They earned every single bit of every single letter from every single article written disparaging them for the truly atrocious uh, moves that they have made. They could really use the media win of getting an official record of Lotos War. Yeah, I'm, I'm only just going to say one thing and then I will let this go by because otherwise I could talk about this for an hour. But uh, I feel like Hasbro has ruined D&D. And so, luckily, we haven't needed an official stamp for our role-playing games for... Well, we never have, really. <laughs> so, we can just move on to uh, other wonderful things. Yeah, like, to summarize my thoughts on this real quick, is Wizards of the Coast has, in the past year, managed to, about every three months find a way to step on to step on a rake step on an easily avoidable clearly marked mm -hmm. flagged and sign pointed rake mm -hmm. what um and they and sometimes they have managed to course correct in a way that regains some significant good grace like when they released the fifth edition srd as a creative commons licensed work Oh god! Which, they they fucked they they they, they yeah. really messed that one up Thank too. God, yeah, like, they accidentally that. put beholders and mind flayers into the public domain, which honestly two of like, their most weird, protected things. It's I, I mean in a weird way. I mean even then that's in the limited sense, but on a weird way I'm okay with that. There oh. were mind flayers in Final Fantasy One. Oh yes, um, and that sort of thing. So you know what? I'm okay with that. Um, I, I see them recognizing in a weird way to an extent that some of the stuff for Beholder, like because of how Dungeons and Dragons has cross-pollinated with heroic fantasy as a genre in a larger whole, I can see them recognizing this and maybe like accepting that degree of cross-pollination. Um because they didn't put like the full life cycle of the mind flayers and their empire from the future and time travel and all that sort of stuff in there. 
like they didn't put the whole nine yards, but they put enough in there where it's like, okay, we recognize that people y'all watch Stranger Things. You know what mind flares yeah, are. You guys know what we're talking about. <laughs> so 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 we're okay if that kind of slips into the public domain. Um Oh we, we where and then we, we and, yeah, and then then three months later, they called the company whose name company who you should have ripped out of your of your Rolodex in the 1920s when they bombed um, a uh, striking miners using aircraft. Um, yeah, it's the Pinkertons. Like, yeah, who even knew the Pinkertons were still around? Well, some now of we us all, knew. now we all do. <laughs> well, some of us already did because, like, oh, well, what have they been up to? Oh no, the exact same exact stuff. Same They've been union busting. They were re- like as recently as I want to say it was twenty twenty. They were in connect. You know, allegedly responsible for one union individual being killed uh, during. I think it was Starbucks union attempts, and um. they've also been brought in. Allegedly brought in for Amazon union busting. Yep. And there was a and there was a bit where there was um, a newspaper, no, uh, it was a news channel, hired um, Pinkerton to bring unarmed security for their film crew who was covering clashing uh, Black Lives Matter and alt right protesters. Oh god! In um, I forget which city it was, and the Pinkerton security person came armed and actually when one of the alt-right protesters pulled mace on the film crew, the pink, the Pinkerton contractor shot him. And this was filmed by like four different news agencies. Um, so even if the prosecutor ultimately elected not to press charges, um, which I think someone got a sizable campaign donation there. Um, I like even even if the prosecutor elected not to press charges, like it is, um, I think they determined like the prosecutor said it's kind of, um, like what wasn't sure if the jury would decide to go, um, uh, go with a um, uh, defense or not, self self defense or not, but even then, the news agency said unarmed. The guy came armed and wasn't licensed to be armed security, so you know. Not- even if it was self-defense, there is that proportion. You know what? We can. I can. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we can talk about this. <laughs> oh yep. boy. Yep. And, There's yep. proportionality. So, There's yeah. So, like, and so, like, it, someone has. I am like, I like. I'm sure. I'm confident that there are good people working on the D and D brand at Wizards of the Coast. It's Hasbro. And I do not. <laughs> I, I, I I do not fault. Like, don't if don't I I do not fault the individual writers and individual contractors who write for the D and D books. I under and for people who still choose to write for that, I understand you're getting to work the dream. You're getting to get paid to do the dream. Um, but how much of this is corporate influence coming down the pipe from Hasbro is that? Um, and so, but fortunately, like we have systems like Pathfinder. Um, 
you can go to both first and second edition. You have the OSR and all the various iterations of it from old school essentials to dungeon crawl classics to Hackmaster fifth edition, which if uh, Jolly Blackbird with, with um, I, um, which I've like, been into for quite some time. In fact, arguably Hackmaster fourth edition kind of kicked off the old school Renaissance. Um, or if you want to really, as being a tongue you, if tongue you want to do a good job of recreating Record of Lotus War, Sword World. <laughs> uh, yeah, like there is like uh, Sword World. Um, the second edition has been very heavily fan translated. Now, mind you, this is a fan translation, so the copyright legality of this is. Um, <clears throat> uh, but that is out there if you go search in the right places. I mean, honestly, you can uh, just get a book in Japanese and then download a fan translation and you're solid. Yeah. Um, and also, like, we're getting more and more Japanese tabletop role-playing games, getting, like, legal official translations. Um, oh. Some of them licensed based on um, anime series, like both series which I, I'm very much looking forward to watching, like Konosuba. And some of which I am probably going to give a solid miss, like uh, Goblin Slayer, even though I did pick up the edition of that because I want to support Japanese translations of tabletop role-playing games. Mm-hmm. Um, or English translations of Japanese tabletop role-playing games when they come out. Mm-hmm. So like, there are options out there for doing this. Also, um, there is a... F- um, name just fell out of my name, on my head. Uh, Fabula... the um, Oh, Tabula Rasa? No, no, the, uh, the role-playing the, um, role game based around, um, I'm sorry, Fabula Ultima, yeah, Fabula Ultima, yeah. which, which is more JRPG, like console RPG inspired, but still will very much work for this kind of tone of a game. Um, yeah, I've been going through a bit of an emotional storm as regards the D&D hobby lately because it's very important to me. It's very important to the person that I have become. Like, it's pretty formative to my experiences as a young woman. And so all of this, um, you know, typical late capitalist corporate bullshit coming out of Wizards of the Coast really bummed me out because I don't want to, like, financially support companies that are going to pull that kind of nonsense. So I have made the personal decision not to buy any more officially licensed D&D books or Magic the Gathering products. But eventually I realized that if you look back at the core of the D&D experience, it's not the rules that we were attached to. It's not the rules that made it fun, you know. It's just sitting around a table with your friends using your imaginations. You can use any system you want for that, whatever works best for you. And they can't take that away from you. You know, they can't say, oh no, you can't sit around with your friends and play make-believe in as adult. You absolutely can. And you should. And it's awesome. And hang in there because, you know, it's going to get better. The, The hobby is full of great people. Yeah, you can even step away from the table and go find a LARP group. They're everywhere. That's true. (laughs) Indeed. And, like, one of the things I appreciate with the number of, like, flexible fantasy role-playing game systems out there is, um, like, one of the things I do whenever I pick up a new fantasy role-playing game, whether it's a new edition of Dungeons & Dragons, or it's an OSR system, or something completely different like, say, RuneQuest, or... um, or uh, Chaosium's basic fantasy or anything like that is like 
the record of Lotus War Group, the, the, the core heroes of Lotus, who are the focus of this series, they, when I am teaching myself a new fantasy system, what I do is I try and stat up the heroes of Lotus because you have five very basic con standard concepts, which are sort of the classic across the board, and then you have Deedlet, who can fight with the sword and can cast magic spells, and with them you get to find out how well the system kind of handles that sort of hybrid concept. Yeah, so and, I think there's a lot of, um, there's some disdain these days towards tropes and archetypes, but tropes and archetypes are prominent in the social consciousness for a reason, and it's because so many people can identify with them and they always have something to offer. And so wanting to embody those tropes and archetypes in your imagination in fantasy gaming is not bad. You know, it's not a bad thing. Don't let anyone tell you it is. You don't have to be... <laughs> I was going to say super special edgelord character, but that's its own trope at this point, isn't it? <laughs> Sometimes it's nice. Just go back to basics with it. <laughs> Indeed. So, we've covered most of the bases here. Um, might as well talk about what we're covering next month, uh, which will be... So I've decided that if we're going to, if I'm going to do a theme thing for September, since people are going back to school, be it um, <laughs> be it kids or college students, do something somewhat educational. And since when we started off this this series, we started off with um, "Keep Your Hands Off Ezuken," which is about the general overview of animation. I thought, you know, let's see how the sausage gets made. And we're going to talk about Shirobako. Now, this show is not available for streaming at this time, but it did receive uh, two different physical DVD and Blu-ray releases, one with and without a dub. Um, so I do recommend uh, seeking that out. Um, I have a physical copy, and I believe you and you do as well. Yes, we do. Uh, do you know who did the dub? Uh, the dub was done by Sentai. Okay. I believe the copy that you have should have the dub. Oh, okay, I I just recently discovered a show I've been watching with my son, Gundam Build Fighters, uh, has a dub that is terrible. Oh. It is just unimaginably awful. It, w would this be like an Australian slash Philippines English dub? This was done apparently by Right Stuff. I didn't know they did dubs until this. I mean, they they have done dubs in the past, um, like for a, they they're the ones who originally licensed um, the very excellently dubbed um, "Irresponsible Captain Tyler." Oh God, that's, that takes me back. Yeah, no this this one I I don't I don't actually know how many people they have working on it. It could just be like three people doing a number of terrible voices. It, they could have an individual cast member doing a terrible voice for everyone, but no one sounds good in this show. I'm sorry. Um, I. Uh, on the other hand, Shirobako has a very good dub. I oh, was quite quite pleased with it, um, and I'm interested in looking forward to. Uh, there's a couple bits in particular I'm looking forward to gushing about because I've watched the show both subbed and dubbed. Um, we might too. It seems like one of those things would be. A good thing to, you know, get both 
I love anything that that educates people about the process of how art gets made, especially, you know, commercial art, like um, animation or design, because most people have no idea. And um, it pervades your world, you guys. You have no idea. Like, <laughs> yeah. it, it is a somewhat romanticized take on the process, but it still has a bit of the edge in terms of like, there are problems with how the process is done. Yeah. Uh, it's not as bad as, say, New Game, where they get a little over romanticize of over some of the Japanese toxic work habits. Like, hey, sleeping under your desk at work is fun! <laughs> they, 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 don't, they don't do that in Shirobako, but they do do that in New Game, which is why I'm probably not going to cover New Game necessarily on this show. We'll see. I mean, if there is demand for it, we, we might talk about it at some point in the future. All right, so to sum up Lodos War. Watch it. Watch it. Great, great animation formu uh, formulated for the genre as a whole. Fun story, fun characters. Uh, yeah. We got we had some gripes about, you know, world building and stuff, but um, honestly, in this, this day and age, you can just hop onto the TV Tropes page or the Wikipedia page and fill in those gaps within a few minutes, so it's not really that big a deal, honestly. <laughs> Uh, I, I have to disagree with you there. If it do, if it's not in the original product, you don't get credit for it. In yeah, my yeah, book, yeah, you feel strongly about this, <laughs> but still worth watching. Oh, absolutely! Like, not there is nothing missing from Record of Lotus War that should affect your enjoyment of Record of Lotus War. Also, All cool right. dragons, which never oh, very cool dragons, very cool dragons. <laughs> Many of whom's mouths make no sense whatsoever. <laughs> we can put more teeth in there, right? Let's cram a few more. <laughs> yes! I mean, there's a reason we don't see your mouth closed ever. You would just tear yourself apart. So there are... I just have to scroll down on the, on the ANN page. There are um, six different dra original dragon design artists, which lead me to expect that they're like... What, a different artist per dragon? Yeah, most likely, yeah. <laughs> That's amazing. If you went to six uh, artists, any six artists, and say, each of you draw a really badass dragon. You, no, I totally understand how that's what they came up with. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Honestly, if you're asking someone to draw a really badass artist, why didn't you go to Todd Lockwood first? <laughs> I understand why. This was made in the 80s. Shout out to Todd Lockwood, who I know personally. He is a lovely, lovely man and an incredible artist. <laughs> and novelist now, right? And now novelist. His his first novel, The Summer Dragons, fabulous. All right. So we will leave that there. Catch you next month. Yeah. Bye. <laughs> Bye. <laughs> <laughs>